You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. I'd love it if you'd turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. So the Gospel of John is the fourth Gospel. So New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Gospel of John, and the very first chapter. Uh, for those of you who like to read the Bible on your phones, we encourage you to use the YouVersion Bible app because if you do that, you sign in and you go to the menu and you go to the events section, you can pull up all the notes on the screen and more and uh, also some helpful links and ways that you can connect with the message today as we go on. So we're going to be in the Gospel of John chapter 1 today and let's begin our study by reading the text which comes from the Gospel of John chapter 1. I'll begin in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he, and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's hand, he has made him known. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and thank you for the profound meaning of this text. I pray that as we consider it, as we study, Lord, and consider uh, these things today, Lord, would you help us to understand? Would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might see you and see glorious things about you from your word? Lord, would you use this time to build up our faith, Lord, to equip us for your work? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're currently in a series here at Whitefields. We're getting to the end of this series. We're going to be starting a new series soon. We'll announce that to you, what that is. We're all prepared for it. We're excited about it. Uh, that'll begin in a few weeks. But today, we're still in our current series, which is called I Could Never Believe in a God Who. And over the course of the last seven weeks now, uh, what we have done is we've, we've taken an honest look at some of the things that people say are their biggest objections to Christianity, the things which people say, you know, what makes it the hardest for me to really embrace Christianity and really believe the gospel is this. And so what we did is we actually put out a poll online where we invited people to answer this question. How would you finish this sentence? I could never believe in a God who... And, and we believe that the way that people finish that sentence kind of reveals a lot of the things which, are, which create the biggest hurdles for them in believing the gospel and embracing Jesus. And so what we did is we took those responses that came in through that poll as well as we looked at a lot of other research on this topic and we narrowed it down to originally seven, but now we're extending it a little bit more than that. These topics that, that really people say, this is really my hang up when it comes to Christianity. This is the thing that causes me to pause. This is the thing that caused me hesitation. And we, we saw that this is true, not just for people who aren't Christians and say, this is the thing which is causing me to say, I can't be a Christian, but also for people who are Christians. 
and who say, you know what, I am a believer, I want to believe, but this is the one thing that I'm still struggling to understand. And so what we're hoping to do over the course of these eight, maybe even nine weeks, is what we're hoping to do is say, okay, well, let's take an honest look at those things and let's give you some answers for a couple reasons. Number one, one of our goals with this is we want to help you move from doubt and unbelief to faith and belief because we believe that it very much matters what you believe. In fact, life and death, the way that you live and all of eternity hinges on what you believe. So what you believe matters and we want to help you move from doubt and unbelief to faith and belief and hopefully remove some of those things which have been barriers for you in the past. The other thing we hope to do with this series is to equip you because we know that you have friends and coworkers and people that you talk to week in and week out, family members who are asking these very questions that we're talking about. And so what we want to do is give you some information, give you some, some scriptures, give you some help so that you are equipped to talk to them and talk to them well and hopefully help them move from uh, doubt and unbelief to faith and belief. When it comes to Christianity and the Bible, one of the biggest struggles that people have, some people have, is they say this, I could never believe in a God who has not proven his existence. I could never believe in a God who has not proven his existence. So in the poll that we took, this was one of the responses that we got from several people. How can I know that God really exists? It's hard to believe in a God I can't see, I can't hear. If God would just reveal himself to me, then I would believe. And some people go, go a little bit further, and here's what they say. They say, you know what? I know the Bible says that God exists, but that's not enough for me. I don't want to just know that the Bible says God exists because you know what? The Bible was written by people, right? A long time ago. And people in like a pre-modern world, right? Where they didn't have the kind of knowledge about science and the world and how the world works like we do today. So for them, the world was mysterious. And so they didn't understand how things worked. And so the only explanation they could come up with was to say, well, there must be some invisible God out there who controls everything and makes things happen. But now, now we have science and we can explain a lot of things in, in the world and why things happen the way they do. So we've kind of uh, moved on. We've outgrown the need to believe in God. Another person might say this, look, if there is a God, why doesn't he just come out and make himself known? If he wants us to believe in him, really easy. Why doesn't he just make himself known to us? Like if God would show up or speak to us or do something so that we know he's there, then, then I would believe. Other people say, you know what, that wouldn't do it for me. I'm not looking for some kind of subjective experience that's too willy-nilly, right? Like anybody can say that they had an encounter with God. What I want is hard facts. I want undeniable scientific proof that God exists. You know, a lot, of, a lot of the time when it comes to Christianity, what a lot of people think is that Christianity is unscientific or, or not even just unscientific, that it's anti-scientific. And Christians really just kind of believe what they've been told to believe or what they've been brainwashed to believe. And, and if anybody starts talking about science, right, we plug our ears and close our eyes and say, no, we don't want to hear it. Don't talk to us about that. Now, I'm here to tell you that, that that's just simply not true. In fact, the opposite is true, that there is indeed evidence for the existence of God. We're going to talk about some of that today. And there are a lot of very intelligent people who have looked at the evidence and given it a hard look, and they've come to the conclusion that they not only believe that there's a God, but they have gone further than that and put their faith in Jesus Christ specifically and put their faith in the Bible. 
Christianity, by the way, is very pro-science. I want you to know that. Christianity is very pro-science. In fact, we have several scientists here in our church even. And so the, the Bible encourages us to study the natural world. Why? Here, the Bible actually tells us this, that by studying the natural world, we can actually know more about God by studying the world that he has made. Professor Alvin Plantinga, he says this about Christianity and science. He says this, modern science developed out of Christian theology because Christian theology presented a world with a distinct form, complexity, and design. Christianity challenges us to experiment with what we see, believing there is order and uniformity to the universe. Albert Einstein famously said this, the more I study science, the more I believe in God. Now, Albert Einstein was not a Christian. I'll be clear about that. But he did believe in God. He was a deist, and he attributed his belief in God to the study of science. Consider this statement from Joseph H. Taylor Jr., by the way, who won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1993. He's also a devout Christian. He said this, A scientific discovery is also a religious discovery. There is no conflict between science and religion. Our knowledge of God is made larger with every discovery we make about the world. Now that's interesting because there is, again, this widely held assumption by some people, uh, which is called the secularization hypothesis. So it's called the secularization hypothesis. And what it, what it basically says this, it assumes that as the world becomes more scientific, as the world becomes uh, increases in knowledge, that religious belief will decline because we'll essentially outgrow the need to believe in God. The problem is, if you look at the data, that is not what is happening. In fact, the opposite is happening. If you check out all the recent studies, I found this very interesting. I just saw a study that came out this week, recent, 2019. And what it shows is that consistently, atheism is actually on the decline, not only in the United States, but worldwide, especially worldwide. It's declining, and religious belief is actually increasing around the world. And it's not just atheism that's in decline, but also agnosticism, which, by the way, if you're not sure, agnosticism is when you say, there might be a God, but we can't really know. And so you say, well, I just choose to say, I don't know. Uh, agnosticism, right, is also on the decline. And the projections, as they look at the data uh, from sociologists, projections show that these trends are only going to continue. And so here's some numbers. Currently, 16% of the world's population classifies themselves as atheist, agnostic, or non-religious. So 16% currently. That's actually down from 30 years ago. And if current trends continue, then by 2050, that number will decline even more to 13%. So contrary to what people expected would happen, what we're seeing happening is this. As our world is now more educated than it has ever been in the past, people are not putting away religious beliefs and faith in God. Rather, just the opposite is happening. As education is increasing, further education has led to further belief, more belief in God. Consider this also. Of all the educated people in the world who believe in God, the vast majority are Christians. And check this out. Amongst Christians, highly educated Christians tend to attend church more regularly than less educated Christians. Now, that's not a slight against less educated Christians at all. It's only to say this. 
this assumption that people uh, have that Christianity and belief in the Bible is only for weak-minded, uneducated people who just don't know any better, that assumption is absolutely false. The gospel is, on the one hand, so incredibly simple that even a child can understand it. But the person of God, the works of God that we can study, that we can investigate, there is not a lifetime, an entire lifetime of study is not enough to plumb the depths of God's work and who he is and, and what the Bible has to say. Uh, and all of that stands up to stringent investigation. You know, there are people who for the last 2,000 years have taken a hard and honest look at the evidence for God. And especially in this modern age where knowledge has increased and people are coming down on the side of faith, not just faith in God in general, but specifically faith in Jesus and the Bible. And there are three things that I want to bring to your attention on this topic of can we really know if God exists? And here's what they are. Number one, the limitations of science. So the limitations of science. Then we'll talk about the fingerprints of God. And finally, we'll talk about the word became flesh. So the limitations of science, the fingerprints of God, and the word became flesh. Consider this quote from Alan Sandage, who is an acclaimed cosmologist. He said this, it is my science which has led me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. See, the reason for this is because science is all about studying and observing the natural world. But see, the, the thing is there are many things which go beyond the realm of what science can observe and measure. For example, science cannot really speak at all, really, to the question of whether or not God exists because that is not a scientific question. That is what we call a metaphysical question. The word meta in Greek means beyond. Of course, physical means physical, so it means beyond the physical realm. Those things which are beyond what we have the capacity to measure and observe scientifically. So whereas science can measure the things in the world, Science cannot tell us where those things originated from. And, and when anyone starts theorizing about where things have originated from, they have moved beyond the limits of science into the realm of metaphysics, into the realm of faith. And I just want to tell you this, everybody does it. Everybody does it. So for example, to say that the universe has always existed, this is one thing that that is a theory. The universe has just always existed. Nothing created, it's just always been there. Again, that's not science. That is a metaphysical belief, which is a matter of faith, not a matter of science. Furthermore, science has actually shown that there was a point in history when the universe came into being. Before that, it didn't exist, and after that, it began to exist. And the question is this, what caused that to happen? Where did the elements that were needed for that to happen, where did they come from? One of the answers to this is what's called naturalism. Naturalism, which means that everything that exists had a natural cause, that there was no intervention from any outside force. It's all natural causes. And basically, it could be summarized like this. There was nothing, and then nothing created itself into something, right? Or nothing uh, blew up, and that created everything. Again, that goes against the fundamental tenets of science. And so naturalism again, goes beyond the limits of science and falls squarely into the realm of faith. And here's all I want to say with this is this. Everybody has a belief system. Everybody in the world exercises faith when it comes to these metaphysical questions. 
Atheism is a belief system. It's not something that can be proved scientifically. Agnosticism is a belief system. Christianity is a belief system. Naturalism is a belief system. And so because there are limitations on what science can measure and observe, for all of us, there's a gap of knowledge. There's a gap of knowledge. And any step you take to bridge those gaps of things which are outside the realm of what can be measured by science, that is a step of faith. And this is my point. Everybody exercises faith. Everybody has a belief system. If you believe that there is no God, that is, again, not something you can prove empirically. That requires faith. If you're an agnostic and you say, we can't actually know anything conclusively about God, so we can't make any determinations. Again, that's not scientific. That is the realm of metaphysics and the realm of faith. And my point is this, everyone exercises faith. Everyone has a belief system. And the reason that's important to acknowledge is this, it puts everybody on an equal footing. Everybody's on an equal footing. So acknowledging that everybody has a belief system, everybody exercises faith, what that does is it opens up the conversation. Now we can begin to talk because we can say, okay, look, it's not faith versus science or faith versus reason. Rather, what we're talking about are different belief systems. So let's consider the basic tenets of these belief systems and let's look at the evidence there is for what they claim so that we can make an informed decision. Here's the question that I want to pose to you and I want you to think about this as we go today and as you leave here today. And that's this. What if it takes more faith to not believe in God than it does to believe in God? I believe that's true. I believe it actually takes, and we're going to talk about why, I believe it takes more faith to not believe in God than it does to believe in God. I believe if you look at the evidence that's out there that points to God, and beyond that, specifically to the evidence that points to the God of the Bible and the person of Jesus, I believe that you'll come to the conclusion that it actually takes more faith to not believe in him than it does to believe in him. Again, everybody has a belief system. Everybody is exercising faith in their belief system because there are gaps of knowledge. What if it takes more faith to not believe in God than it does to believe in God? Let's go on to our next point, which is this, the fingerprints of God. So Alvin Plantinga, he's a philosopher. He studied at Yale. He, uh, he worked at Duke University, and he was a tenured professor of philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. And throughout his life, he has done extensive work compiling rational and scientific arguments for the existence of God. And what Alvin Plantinga says is that there are about 30 strong arguments for the existence of God, about 30. Now, we're not gonna have time to look at all of those, but they're readily available online. Check it out, Alvin Plantinga and his uh, reasons for the existence of God. Now, here's what I'll say about those. None of those 30 reasons is like a, a perfect slam dunk that, that's you know watertight that nobody can question. But taken together, these 30 things, when all considered together, they form a very strong case for believing in the existence of God. Now, you might ask the question, wait a second, so why didn't God just give us one thing that we could point to and say, okay, this is a slam dunk, no question, this proves that God exists? Well, I believe there's a reason for that, and we're going to talk about that as we go on today in just a minute. 
But Alvin Plantinga, again, he says there are these about 30 rational and scientific arguments for the existence of God. And they form a case together which is so strong that it's actually more difficult to not believe in God than it is to believe in God. So let's just take a look at really just a couple. We're going to look at, at three. Number one, we're going to look at the evidence from cosmology. Evidence from cosmology. The study of the universe. Francis Collins is an award-winning scientist. He is currently the director of the National Institute of Health. And prior to that, he was the director of what's called the Human Genome Project, which was a study done in our lifetime in which they actually mapped the human genome. And Francis Collins, he started out his life as an atheist, but the more he studied science, and specifically the more he studied genetics, he became convinced that there must be something behind this. And that journey led him to Christ and he became a Christian. He also wrote a very famous book called The Language of God, which is about the genetic code. And so here's what Francis Collins has to say about the universe and cosmology. He says this, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, there are 15 constants, such as gravity, the speed of light, the mass of an electron, that have precise values. If any of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have come to the point where we see it. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. In other words, there's this incredible fine-tuning to our universe and it couldn't have happened by accident, right? If it were off by just a little bit, nothing could exist. So what are the chances? Maybe you say, okay, well, what are the chances of all of those things aligning perfectly to create the perfect conditions for life? Well, those numbers were run by, or attempted to be run by a man named Donald Page. He's part of the University of Princeton's uh, Institute for Advanced Science. And here's what he says. The chances of this exact fine-tuning coming about is one in 10 billion to the 124th power. One in 10 billion to the 124th power. That's like a ridiculous number that I can't even imagine. Again, to believe that this happened by random chance takes a lot of faith, right? Like a lot of faith. And that's why I asked the question, what if it actually takes more faith to not believe in God than it does to believe in God? So how do we explain the fine-tuning of the universe apart from belief in God? Well, attempts have been made. So for, I've mentioned this name a couple times during this series, Manny Richard Dawkins, right? He's an he's a, uh, evangelical atheist, which means that not only is he an atheist, but he wants you to be an atheist, right? And so he writes books about it. Well, Richard Dawkins, he says, well, how do we explain the fine-tuning of the universe? Well, he says, here's how I explain it. He calls it the multiverse theory, multiverse theory, which means that he believes there are trillions of parallel universes that exist. And in each of those parallel universes, one of the possible, the many possible scenarios which exists uh, that could have happened has happened in one of those parallel universes. And we just happened to score the jackpot, right? We just got really lucky and we happened to be in the universe where everything worked out perfectly. Now, again, I just want to point out Parallel universes, right? Like that's where we're at. That's how we're trying to explain it without God. That is going far beyond the realm of science. There is zero evidence for this that can be observed or measured. This is not science, guys. This is faith. This is metaphysics. And again, I'm going to ask the question, what if it takes more faith to 
to not believe in God than it does to believe in God. I believe that's the case. Let's look at another one, which is the evidence from morality. Did you know this? That Did you know that among primates, right? So monkeys, uh, gorillas, chimpanzees. Among primates, male primates regularly commit sexual assault against female primates. Like it's just, it's something they do every day, right? It's all the time. Now, this is something that scientists have observed. It's well documented that male monkeys and gorillas regularly intimidate, harass, and rape female monkeys and gorillas. And what scientists argue is that this behavior is natural and, in a way, from a scientific perspective, it is advantageous for the gene pool for this to happen. And here's why. Because the stronger, more aggressive males will pass on their genes rather than the weak and passive males. So you end up with a stronger gene pool. Everybody benefits from it, I guess you could say. And so here's the question. When it comes to human beings, why is it that people unanimously believe that rape and sexual assault are wrong? Like if you were to take a poll in every culture in the world, people would say, yeah, that's definitely wrong. I mean, if it's natural, if there's a scientific benefit to it, if it's advantageous from a genetic perspective, then why do we believe that it's wrong morally for one person to do that to another person? You see, science, including actually psychology, they can describe why things are the way they are. Science and psychology, sociology, these things can explain why people do the things that they do. But what these studies, these sciences cannot do is that they cannot tell us how people ought to behave, why certain things should be a certain way and not another way. Rebecca McLaughlin puts it like this. She's from Oxford University. She says this, science can explain why a man might have the drive to commit sexual assault, but it cannot tell us why he would be wrong to succumb to that drive. Sociology can tell us that certain behaviors impact a community, but in order to say that some behaviors are wrong, we need a narrative about human identity that goes beyond what science and sociology can tell us. See, the fact that every human being has a conscience, a sense of right and wrong. Now, people may differ on what they believe are right and wrong, but everybody believes that there are certain things that are right and wrong. You know, some of the time, sometimes you'll hear people say, we live in a society that is amoral or a society that is pluralistic or let's say people believe that moral, morality is relative. I would argue with that and I'd say, no, I think that people today have a very highly tuned sense of morality. And you know how that's true? How many of you have ever screwed scrolled social media and you've seen someone on there fighting for some cause, right? A social justice warrior. They're fighting for a cause, whatever that cause may be. They, they're going out, they're marching in the street, they're arguing for some, they're fighting for something. This period we live in in time has been called the age of outrage, which means anytime you turn on the radio, TV, internet, people are upset about something. Now, I'm not here to tell you who's right or who's wrong. What I am here to tell you this, the fact that people are outraged points to morality. They believe that something is wrong, something is right, and they wanna fight for what's right and they wanna fight against what's wrong. They might disagree on what those things are, but everybody believes that there's right and there's wrong. In other words, everyone has a sense of morality and morality points to something that is not uh, explained by evolutionary science or even by sociology or by psychology. It points to something which is outside of us. It points to the fact that we were created by a personal God. 
Steven Pinker is a atheist writer. And Steven Pinker, I appreciate him in this sense. I believe that he has the honesty to say what is obvious. And that's this. He says this. The truth is, if you believe that human beings are just the result of a series of natural processes, evolution and experience, then no one should ever be held accountable for anything they do because they are only doing what they were programmed to do by nature. In other words, if someone commits a crime, well, we shouldn't hold them accountable because they couldn't have done otherwise. Their actions are really just the inevitable outworking of their programming. And yet nobody believes that, right? None of us would agree with that. We all believe that people are responsible for their actions. We believe that people should be held accountable when they do things that are wrong. We teach our kids that just because they feel like doing something doesn't mean they should necessarily do that thing. You might feel like hurting someone, but you shouldn't, right? You might feel like shaking a baby when you're frustrated, but you should not do that. You might sometimes not feel like doing something that is right, but you should still do it even if you don't feel that way. You see, in other words, no matter how you are inclined, there are some feelings which you should go with and some feelings which you should not go with. And the point is this, we all believe there is a moral law and a moral law points to something outside of us. It points to a moral law giver. By the way, this applies to other areas as well. It applies to beauty. Why is it that you long for beauty? Why is it that certain sounds sound good to you and other sounds don't sound good to you? There's no evolutionary advantage to beauty and art. Do you realize that? There's no evolutionary advantage to these things. I love the mountains. I find them beautiful. In fact, there are a few mountains that I particularly love. They're, you know, my favorites to look at and enjoy. But if I really think about it, you know, mountains are really just big piles of dirt, right? Just big piles of dirt with rocks on top, right? So why is it that I find some piles of dirt more attractive than other piles of dirt? Or how about poetry or cinema or art? There are words which put in a certain order with a certain intonation can cause you to have butterflies in your stomach. They can cause you to cry. Why? Why is it that some things we find beautiful, uh, is that actually just completely meaningless? It's just our brains tricking us? What about love? Is love just a chemical reaction which helps us evolutionary-wise, right? And nothing more? Or do those feelings we have actually point to something real that actually exists? Is love real? All of these things, morality, beauty, love, they point to something which is outside of us, which exists and is true. And when we're experiencing something that resonates with us, you all know that feeling, with that reality which is outside of us, there's something within us that says, yes, that's it. That's what I've been looking for. That's what I've been longing for. That's what I was created for. That is why I exist. That is the goal of my existence is to get more of that. See, people who deny the existence of God, they have a really hard time explaining morality and beauty and love. As Christians, right, the Bible tells us that, that very clearly, that it's because we were created by God and our hearts long for beauty and perfection and love and truth because that is who God is. And that is what heaven will be, guys, by the way. It's being united with God. And then something deep inside of us knows that and longs for it and longs to get glimpses of it and tastes of it wherever we can. Timothy Keller says this. He says, I have a radical thesis. I think people in our culture know unavoidably 
that there is a God. They are just repressing what they know. Interesting theory, right? But do you know that that idea isn't unique to Timothy Keller? You know where he got that idea? He got that straight out of the Bible. See, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says this. Some people naturally obey the law's commands, even though they don't have the law. This proves that the conscience is like a law written in the human heart, and it shows whether we are forgiven or condemned. In Romans chapter 1, we're told this. For what can be known about God is plainly seen by all people because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Therefore, he goes on to say, people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Later on in this chapter, he says, people refuse to acknowledge him as God. And, or give thanks to him, he says, because they, and they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What it's saying is that every rational person intuitively knows that there is a God. Many people, however, are suppressing or repressing that knowledge. Now, maybe you ask the question, why would someone repress the knowledge that God exists? Well, there in Romans chapter one, we're told why. It's because if there is a God, then it means that he has a claim on our lives. It means that he has rights of ownership over us and we are accountable to him. But that brings us to another question. Well, which God, right? Like what kind of God is he? Right? If, is he a God that we should be afraid of and, and avoid at all costs? Is he a cosmic killjoy, right? Who doesn't want us to have any fun down here trying to take away all our joy? And the answer would be no. Yes, he's a God of truth. Yes, he's the ultimate judge, but he's also a redeemer. He's also a loving God. He's a life-giving, joy-inducing, beautiful God. We see that in nature. We see it also in God's revelation of himself, which brings us to our next point, the evidence from revelation. Now, maybe you say, okay, look, I believe there's a creator. I believe there's some kind of God out there, but why should I believe it's this God, the God of the Bible? Well, think about it like this. If there is a God who created us, well, he created us for a purpose, probably, and he, he would create us, and he would want to communicate with us if he had a purpose for us so that we would know what that purpose is and we'd be sure to do it. So if it would make sense, then, that God would reveal himself to us in a way beyond just the general revelation of what we can know from nature, and he'd give us some specific revelation about who he is and what his plan for us was. And if God was to communicate with us, let me ask you, what would you expect that communication to be like? Well, maybe you would say you'd expect it to be in some kind of written form. Why? So that there would be a record that would be passed on so we could make sure that it is set, that it isn't being changed all the time by every person who comes along, like in a game of telephone, right? Now, I would argue that the Bible has all the marks of what we would expect to see if God were trying to communicate with us. For example, the Bible is not just one book. It's actually a collection of 66 books written over the course of 1,600 years by 40 different authors, most of whom never met each other. It was written in three languages on three different continents. And yet all these different writings, like pieces of a puzzle, when they come together, they form one cohesive whole, one cohesive story. 
And this story tells us about who God is, what he is like, why he has created us, why the world is the way it is, and what God's plan is, what he's going to do in the future. The Bible contains hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, times when God said, before something happened, here's what's going to happen, and then it happened. Hundreds. A few weeks ago, we looked at the topic of whether we can know that the Bible has not been changed. And we saw that throughout uh, history, we, as archaeology has ramped up over the last two to 300 years, we've seen more and more proof that actually show us the Bible has not changed or been altered. Which again, if there is a God and he wanted to communicate with us, then it would be reasonable to assume that he would give us something and he would also protect it to make sure that it wasn't changed or altered. Now, here's the thing. I'm not telling you that you should believe in God because the Bible says that he exists. What I'm saying is that the Bible itself is so incredible that when you look at it, it serves as one of the fingerprints of God. It bears all the marks of what we would expect to be if God were to communicate with us. And that brings us to our final thing that I want to talk to you about today. It brings us back to where we started. The word became flesh. See, many people who doubt the existence of God have reassured themselves with the thought, look, if God exists and he wanted us to believe in him, well then, I'm sure he would appear to us somehow and make himself known to us. Well, let me ask you, what if he has already done that? Because I believe that he has. The Gospel of John is one of four written accounts of Jesus' life. Eyewitness accounts that was written by people who were with him, who saw the things he did with their own eyes, who heard his words with their ears, and they wrote down what happened for other people to know. And of the four Gospels, John's Gospel, where we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John's Gospel takes the most philosophical approach to explaining not just who Jesus was and what he did, but why he did these things and what they mean for you and me. See, John doesn't just want us to understand what Jesus did. He wants us to understand why he did it and what it means for us. And here's how John begins his gospel in a very dramatic way. He says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now notice in your Bibles that that word word is capitalized. Now, why is it capitalized? Because the word behind the word word, if you're tracking with me, right? The word behind the word word. In other words, in Greek, which is the original language that this was written in, the word word, which is capitalized, is the Greek word logos. Now, logos literally translates to word. That's why it says word in English. But it's more than that. And it doesn't always come through with a simple reading of the Bible. You need a little background. The reason it's capitalized is because that word, logos, the word word, was a Greek philosophical concept, particularly held by Stoics, which was very popular at this time. So the Greeks believed that behind the universe, there was an invisible force which drives the universe, a moral force and a set of laws which govern the universe. And they called that force behind everything, they called it the logos, the word. Now, John is saying this, hey, guys, you know that thing you believe in, the logos, that invisible force that's driving the universe, that moral force that's behind all the laws of physics and morality, that logos thing, that is God. That's God. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was God. But wait a second, which God is it, right? Because Greeks believed in lots of gods. Notice what he says, in the beginning. Have you ever heard those words before? 
Even if you've never read the Bible, you might know those words. They might sound familiar. Those are the very first words of the Bible. The book of Genesis, the Hebrew Bible, right? It begins with these words. In the beginning, and now John taps into that, and he grabs a hold of that, and he says, in the beginning. In other words, which God are we talking about? We're talking about the God of the Bible, the Hebrew God, the God of the Bible, the Logos, this invisible force behind the universe is God. And specifically, it's the God of the Bible. And then he drops the bomb in verse 14 and he says, and the word, the Logos, the force behind the universe, who is God, the God of the Bible, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What John is saying is that the person of Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ, God has come to us and made himself known to us. Look what he says in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. If God were to come to us in person, in a, as a human being, what would we expect him to be like? Well, I think it's reasonable to assume that he would, if he was a man, he would, he would live a holy life and maybe his words would probably be the most insightful, most encouraging, most piercing words that have ever been spoken out of a human mouth. And I think it's reasonable to expect that he would perform miracles, not only as a demonstration of his love, but as an attestation of who he is. Now, let me ask you a question. Has there ever been anyone in history like that? Has there ever been anyone who claimed that he was God and he authenticated that claim by living a holy life and performing miracles and speaking words that were unarguably the most insightful, influential words ever spoken? You might argue that if God were to come to earth, it would change history. Nobody would ever forget that. It would be something that people would talk about and write books about and think about and sing about and talk about for years to come. They would probably take those words that he spoke. They would probably write them down. They would read them aloud. They would try to apply them to their lives and live them out. And of course, I'm talking about Jesus. God has appeared to us. He has done all of those things and more. And he tells us there in verse 14, the word God became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. John's saying, I saw it with my own eyes. He was full of grace and truth. He says in verse nine, the true light has come to everyone. It's come into the world. And he says, verse 10, he was in the world. The world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine? What if God came to earth as a person and people didn't believe in him? And of course, that's exactly what happened. There were a lot of people who saw him, met him in person, and they did not receive him. In fact, they went further than that. They actually killed him. How is that even possible, you might ask? Well, it's possible in the same way that people today have evidence that God exists and many still refuse to believe in him. Now, I asked the question earlier, why hasn't God given us one slam dunk proof that just ends the whole conversation and shows us that God exists and who he is? Well, because at the end of the day, it requires faith. God wants us to have faith. Not blind faith. It's not blind faith. It's faith that's based on evidence, but it still requires faith. It requires a step on your part to trust and believe. You know, even people who met Jesus face to face, even people who saw him risen from the dead, they still had to make a choice to believe or not to believe. To say, I will surrender, or I will not surrender. And, and if they don't surrender, why? Because they said, they actually said this at the time of Jesus, 
We do not want that man to rule over us. In other words, people still do that. They say, no, I want to call the shots. I don't want him to rule over me. And the irony of it is this. The choice to push God away doesn't really lead to freedom. It leads to bondage and sorrow, both now and forever. And I'll finish with this, verse 12. Look at what it says. To all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This promise is still true for you today. God has come to us. God has revealed himself to us, made himself known in the person of Jesus. If you receive him and what he did for you in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, he will give you the right to be called a child of God. That's the purpose for which you were created, to be united with him and be embraced by him. And it begins now and it continues for eternity. As we go from here today, I wanna encourage you to be intentional and recognize all of the fingerprints of God that are all around you. And may we respond to him in faith with thankful hearts for all that he's done. Amen? Lord, as we consider your works uh, this morning, as we consider all the things which point to your existence, Lord, we recognize that it still requires faith on our parts. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes. Lord, open our hearts that we might believe, that we might see, that we might know. And Lord, help us to have faith to believe. I pray for anyone here today who says, you know, I've been kind of on the fence. I've been kind of wavering. I've been kind of holding back. Lord, I pray that today would be the day where they put down their yes and say, I'm all in. I I will trust in this God. I will look into the evidence. I will recognize the fingerprints of God all around me. And I will put my faith in him. Lord, I I pray for uh, us all this week that as we go about, Lord, this, this life that we live, Lord, that we would see your fingerprints all around us and we give you glory and honor and praise. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.